0: Welcome to Housing Developments. I'm Jerry Howard.
1: And I'm Jim Tobin. Hey, Jerry. Jim, it's good to be with you. Good to be with you as well. Uh, are things going? Or uh...
0: Everything is going very well. And sure. uh, uh, thanks in, in part, no small part, to our sponsors, uh, Wells Fargo Home Mortgage, who are the ones who make this podcast possible. Thank you very much, Wells Fargo, and uh, to all of our listeners out there. Please consider using Wells Fargo Home Mortgage as part of your financing packages. Jim, um, yeah, yeah. let's hear your perspective. What's going on in Washington? Uh, I, I imagine everybody that the, the Ukraine situation has got to be a number one on everybody's list.
1: R- 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 Ukraine's number one. Uh, it's, uh, it's it's it's. The impacts on the U.S. economy, though the the, the European Union and the U.S. Uh, remain in lockstep in trying to continue to squeeze the Russian economy and the Russian oligarchs, uh, and and it seems like every 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 day or two there's there's a new sanction, uh, there's a new announcement of of pending sanctions. So uh, that is that is uh, working. We're seeing the Russian economy starting to. A falter. Uh, that said, the impacts of what's going on in Ukraine are being felt by uh, by Americans now, re- really being borne out in the in the high the high cost of of gasoline right now and diesel fuel. And uh, our guest today is going to address some of that uh, in a minute. But uh, but that's what we're talking about now. Uh, and, and President Biden calling recently for Congress to act, removing. Uh, most favored nation trading status on Russia that would Im- immediately impose uh, sanctions on, on Russia. Uh, there was bipartisan accord this week on, um, on, on banning Russian oil uh, fully coming into the US economy. Now, Europe's not quite doing that yet, uh, but bipartisan action uh, in Congress passing a law uh, or passing at least a, 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 a bill uh, that would that would ban Russian oil. We get a, I think it's about ten percent or so comes in from Russia. Well, no more, uh, which then leads us to the next conversation, which is let's start pumping our own gas here in the U.S. and really ramp up the production of oil and gas here in the U.S. We have the capacity to do it. The administration just needs to take the handcuffs off the industry.
0: You're right, and this uh, removal of most favored nation status hits both you and I personally. Uh, for me, it will definitely impact. Uh, my vodka consumption, and <laughs> I imagine you'll have to cut down on your caviar consumption. That's um, right. It's, but uh, it, it's a, that that it must be getting serious for you now.
1: It is, uh, you know. Nothing loves a good Caspian sturgeon like I do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, I've been traveling a lot. Number one issue with our our members, at least from my travels, is the supply chain uh, from oh, lumber to to cabinetry to tiles.
1: I had a story from a builder and uh, said they had, a, they had the uh, certificate of occupancy held up on a home over one 30 amp breaker that they could not source for supply chain issues and held up the entire house, one circuit breaker, inspector wouldn't certify. So uh, it's, it's pieces as small as that. Uh, it's, it's also electrical boxes, single phase transformers, you said windows, doors, uh, we're hearing about it. Glass, it, it appliances. It doesn't matter. It seems like once we unwind one, uh, there's another one falling in right behind. And of course, uh, lumber, lumber leads the way, in that uh, in that category, uh, you know, in spades. As we watch, uh, as we watch lumber continue to climb over the last last several months, up over fifty percent uh, since the beginning of last year, and in OSB, you know, even ahead of that, you know, over sixty percent. Uh, it just seems like the hits won't won't stop coming.
0: Our listeners will be happy to know that by the time we do our next podcast, uh, NHB Board Chairman Jerry Conter and First Vice Chairman Alicia Yui uh, will have participated in a White House uh, listening session on the supply chain in lumber. Uh, can you give our, our listeners a little bit of a preview on that, Jim?
1: Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to the White House, or at least we're going virtually to the White House. Uh, but we are meeting with, with uh, the, the top-level staffers at the National Economic Council the Domestic Policy Council, the National Security Council, because of our views on international trade and getting back to uh, finding better better lumber trading partners in our long-term deal with Canada. Uh, the, the Council on Environmental Quality is going to join us on this call because of our stance and our urging of opening uh, opening up our national forests and our Bureau of Land Management forests to more harvesting. So uh, Jerry Condor is going to bring the message of the, of from the members about the, the, the constraints that the supply chain and lumber prices are having on the construction of single and multifamily houses uh, and making them uh, less affordable, but then also offering real solutions that this administration can take to heart and, and begin to implement and, and hopefully see this administration say, take an overt action on, on lumber prices.
0: Well, sticking with that subject, I think it's time to uh, bring in our guest and hear his view on the supply chain. We're happy to have with us today, Chris Spear. Chris Spear is the president and CEO of the American Trucking Association. His job for our listeners is very similar to that with which you charge me. He leads the ATA's efforts to advocate and educate on behalf of the industry. Um, There are more than 7 million people involved in the trucking industry. Uh, and they move more than 10 billion tons, I'll say that again, 10 billion tons of freight annually. It's one of the uh, the key, if not the key, uh, transportation element in the American economy. Um, prior to his time at ATA, Chris worked in the transportation, energy, labor and technology sectors in over five continents, uh, and also has an extensive experience in the federal government, serving as the Deputy Representative for the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq, the Assistant Secretary of Labor for Policy, and as a professional staff member in the U.S. Senate. Quite a, uh, quite a complete resume, Chris. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Jerry, for having me on. I appreciate you and uh, Jim taking the time today. You know, Jim and I were just talking before we brought you on about the continuing problems our members are having with the supply chain. Uh, tell us about this issue from your perspective.
2: Well, it's extraordinarily complex as home builders know, uh, we kind of consider trucking to be the glue of the supply chain as we're moving 72% of the domestic freight in this country. So there really isn't any component of the economy that we don't support directly or indirectly. So uh, if you bought it, we brought it. And, uh, you know, the food we, we eat, uh, what we drink, what we wear, as well as, uh, the fuel we put in our cars and trucks is, is, uh, all transported, uh, by our industry on our memberships. So, uh, we see and feel things, uh, and probably in some respects a bit differently, um, as we're, we're spread throughout the, uh, entire supply chain. So we're at the ports. Um, we're part of that equation. Um, we're putting, you know, freight on rail, we're putting it on the backs of, of, uh, chassis and and then on to uh, warehousing where it's then distributed into either long haul or last mile and so there's not really uh, any part within the supply chain that we're not seeing and experiencing the bottlenecks uh, that we've endured over the last couple years trying to come and out of the COVID induced rut that we're in Um, we've been working with the white house uh, certainly the dot uh, even on the department of labor and commerce uh, is there's, there's a whole host of elements within that supply chain that have been uh, measurable headwinds, uh, starting with labor. Uh, I think we're experiencing, like everybody, a shortage of talent. Um, every you know, facet of the economy is having you know, to, to endure this slow return to work coming off of COVID. Um, and that's made it very difficult in terms of putting uh, people behind the wheel Uh, if you don't have drivers you're not going to move freight and it just puts added strain on our ability to serve our customers long term uh so we've had a heavy focus on labor uh beyond that obviously chips microchips uh in equipment um you know we've outsourced that over the years uh largely to taiwan and other countries uh particularly in the asian rim and when you've got not just vehicles but commercial vehicles uh you know, joining those passenger vehicles on the chip shortage, it's been very, very difficult to put new equipment into circulation. And uh, we've all seen from used cars, used trucks are no different. The exorbitant prices that we're now having to pay as an industry for used equipment and uh, our fleets are even cannibalizing a lot of the sensors, not just, you know, microchips, but even uh, diesel emissions fluid sensors. So to keep our, our inventory of equipment moving that freight uh, it's gonna require a lot of support throughout manufacturing. And the supply chain is where we look for that. And when there's bottlenecks, uh, that's that's gotta be a calculable uh, measurement for, for our ability to meet uh, the timelines our customers need. So it's a very intricate, detailed supply chain from our perspective, and there's no real one solution. We have to really focus uh, on the labor component, the manufacturing of technology, getting equipment, uh, you know, to the industries that support the supply chain and the movement of freight uh, is extraordinarily pivotal uh, if we're gonna alleviate these pressures. And I'd say lastly, Jerry, that the infrastructure bill that we passed uh, last fall, we testified 25 times in the House and Senate over the last five years on the importance of investing in infrastructure. Uh, we lose $74.5 billion a year as an in industry just sitting in traffic. That's 425,000 drivers sitting idle for an entire year, 67 million tons of CO2 being emitted. So there's really something in that for everybody uh, on both sides of the aisle. Infrastructure is good policy. Roads and bridges aren't Democrat or Republican. We all drive on them. And if we're going to alleviate that congestion and get uh, items from point A to B efficiently and safely, Uh, we've got to invest in infrastructure so we're very pleased with that bill 38 percent increase in funding over the next five years that's going to provide a lot of certainty uh going forward so you know you know additional headwinds with ukraine obviously placed on that um the threat of hacking we experienced that with a colonial pipeline uh and then COVID itself laced over the top all of that uh my gosh i don't know how much more weight we could all put on the supply chain uh, and and be able to grow our economy. Uh, so again, you know, I think we're all in this together, but I do appreciate you allowing me to outline a lot of the pressures that we're feeling directly uh, as they are impactful, and they certainly uh, show up on a cash flow statement for any home builder. So uh, there is a direct correlation to what we're trying to do and alleviate that we believe is going to help your industry grow uh, at a faster pace. So uh, we hope the steps that we're taking are going to uh, provide a, a quicker path to recovery uh, than what we're experiencing in the last two years.
1: Chris, do you, do you, you talked about um, you, you talked about workforce, and as an industry that's labor intensive, as, as home building is, and the trucking industry as well. You know, workforce training is is one of our our, our most important aspects of what we do, and one of the the largest. Probably probably the, the biggest governor on housing production over the long haul is the ability uh, or the inability to, to train new workers, young workers in particular, coming into an aging workforce. Tell us a little bit about the solutions you have on, on the workforce side in particular. What are some of the things that you're doing to encourage encourage new people to get into, uh, into trucking?
2: Yeah, it's almost a similar answer to the supply chain. There's not one silver bullet. You're going to have to invest in a whole host of, of uh, initiatives to shore up the shortage of talent that we're experiencing. We're about 8.4 million strong as an industry. We've got 3.5 million drivers uh, that are participating in that. So uh, in addition to drivers, technicians, dock workers. So it's a very strong mix of talent that is required uh, for our industry to support uh, consumption throughout the country and every segment of the economy. And uh, you know one in sixteen jobs in the United States is related to that eight point four million. And that top job in twenty nine states is a truck driver. So you know it's it's a very, very critical component of our economy. When I said earlier, it's the glue. Those numbers should illustrate that. And that's what makes up the seventy two percent of the domestic freight that is that trucking is moving. more broadly on on trade, With USMCA, we're supporting 76% of the USMCA trade between Canada and Mexico. So there really is nothing that our economy doesn't depend on more than trucking to glue it all together. In terms of talent, uh, we have got to do several things to shore that up. Uh, In that infrastructure bill that I mentioned, we were successful, including uh, what's called the Drive Safe Act that gives us access to 18 to 20 year old uh, talent pool. Uh, which 49 states currently allow to drive a class eight, you just can't cross state lines. What frustrates us is that uh, there's no training and there's no technology on the equipment attached to those 49 states. What the Drive Safe Act does is set up uh, 400 hours of training of which 240, you have to have an experienced driver in the cap, you have to have AEB, speed governors, uh, collision mitigation systems like adaptive cruise control, All those things are now part of this program to train that talent pool to operate the equipment more safely and responsibly. And we believe that that our ability to go into high schools and attract that talent that may not want to go to college, may not want to absorb all the debt that comes with it, to go into our industry where you're paid on average $60,000 a year with full benefits just starting, uh, we've got people earning six figures. That is not uncommon every segment of trucking. So you can do extraordinarily well in our industry um, without having to go to college. Uh, beyond that group of talent, we're looking at veterans. We're looking at uh, exiting service members from the military that have the skill set that we require. Uh, we're also looking at urban hiring, uh, both in terms of gender, uh, where we have uh, a 7% participation rate of females. That's way too low. Uh, we do have, in terms of minorities, uh, about a 43% participation rate, which is really strong. But urban hiring, I think, gives us an opportunity to, to go after gender as well as more minorities. And then I think we have to focus on our existing talent pool, uh, wellness programs that go beyond uh, what our healthcare care provides, uh, making certain that if drivers want to stay in the saddle five, you know, 10 more years, uh, their health permits that we have programs that help keep them uh, safe and healthful. And so these are all things that we have to do simultaneously over the course of the next 10 years, if we're to shore up the shortage. Same applies to technicians uh, and other entry-level positions within the industry. One of the things I did uh, uh, last Tuesday, two weeks ago, uh, was sign uh, a national registered uh, apprenticeship program with Secretaries Walsh and Buttigieg and very pleased. That's something we pursued for several years, and we're finally able to pin down with this administration, which we believe is going to allow ATA to serve as the flagship for our 50 state associations and members, the 34,000 members that we have, uh, to do more registered apprenticeship programs. And you know that's going to serve as a, a more formal platform to bring uh, people into the industry, train them properly, and uh, get them into this workforce. So all these things collectively are going to need to be done, Jim, if we're going to be able to, to serve and grow that 72% uh, to a higher number. And uh, we've got to get serious about this. It's a real problem. And we're going to continue to put pressure on our customers and the economy if we don't get focused on these problems.
0: That's really interesting, Chris. We're doing a lot of the, the very same things, but one thing you started off with that that. that Uh, sort of raises the hackles on the back of my neck is if I understood you right, a guy can get in a truck and drive from the New Mexico border to the Arkansas border uh, at the age of 18, but that same guy can't drive an hour and a half from Boston to Providence. Uh, Is that correct?
2: Spot on correct. That That makes absolutely no sense. It is it is beyond uh, nonsense. I, I've never seen uh, a more dysfunctional policy uh, at the federal level than this. And as you probably are aware, you deal with uh, safety advocates in your sector uh, of business. We do as well. And uh, they have been so staunchly opposed to this 18, 20-year-old. And my question to them is, where were you when 49 states allowed an 18-year-old to drive intrastate, where you can go from El Paso to Texarkana, you just can't cross into Texarkana, Arkansas, as you just said, makes absolutely no sense with no training, no technology. We've got 18, 20 year olds going over to protect our freedom abroad. We train them to go fight, but we can't teach them how to cross state lines in a class eight, it's ridiculous. So uh, thankfully that argument prevailed. We had a bipartisan bill uh, in both chambers, and that language made it into the infrastructure bill, as I said. So you know, good advocacy and good policy, Jerry, pay off. Uh, but I'm very pleased with the outcomes. And I think uh, you know, our industry and our customers, uh, including home builders, are going to benefit from that.
0: Well, to, to our listeners, I mean, you can just imagine if that had stayed in effect, um, the, the ports on the East Coast that are in small states where you literally have to cross state lines to go anywhere the ports in New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, uh, all the way down to Savannah. Um, It it just, it it hamstrings your industry uh, and therefore our industry just unbelievably. So uh, we're hoping that you'll get that training underway quickly. Uh, That that could help solve some of the problem right there. Uh, In terms of uh, of some of your other efforts on on, on workforce development, uh, we're doing a lot of the very same things. Uh, in terms of reaching out into the military. And uh, by the way, our members, I'm sure yours will too, uh, fully and almost unanimously state that when they get an ex-service member uh, on their payroll, they automatically become the best employees that they've ever had. The discipline they have, the work ethic they have is just second to none. So that's a really good talent pool. Uh, We're also looking at, you're looking at urban hiring. I guess our equivalent of that is we're working with uh, at-risk youth uh, all across the board. I think we're on the same page, and I hope that there are ways that our two organizations, uh, with the clout that we have, can work even more closely together in this front.
2: Well, I I do too, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to come on this podcast because this is really how we, we we really put our issues in front of our members and gain a general understanding of what we're both doing about it. In many instances, I've found that our advocacy efforts overlap on several fronts, so. Uh, this is clearly one of them. Uh, I think the infrastructure intertwined with with the uh, skilled labor uh, efforts, I think, are, are uh, nicely commingled. Um, but I also think in the deregulatory front, you know, it's tough enough coming out of COVID for two years, now facing the pressures of the situation we see in Ukraine uh, and the uncertainty that's put, the volatility in the market, certainly the price of oil. Hell, 75 cent gain in diesel uh, just over the last week. Uh, We're projecting now 185 to $200 a barrel. Uh, That is not sustainable. So, you know, when we look at uh, all the headwind out there and then, you know, an administration will throw a a COVID mandate on us, which we were successful beating in the Supreme Court in in, uh, January. Uh, But we've got environmental rules that are coming out that are extraordinarily uh, difficult to comply with, you know. You, you just cannot uh, absorb much more. Uh, I understand the situation in, in Ukraine and the impact that has on on the prices of fuel that we pay, and we're going to have to absorb some of that. But some of this other stuff is really self-inflicted, and it's just not well thought out. And if we can work together to amplify, uh, you know, our opposition to this and inject some common sense uh, into the debate. I think we're going to have a much better situation and environment that we can all grow and work in. So uh, I certainly welcome that, Jerry.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you talk about regulation, 25% on average of the cost of a new single family home is born in regulatory compliance. Um, and people are wondering why the average American American truck drivers can't afford to buy a home of their own in most parts of this country. Uh, it's just the overregulation is, is absurd. And for our listeners, you can see that unfortunately, it's not only impacting the home building sector, it's impacting those sectors that supply us as well.
1: Hey, Chris, I want to, something that's been in the news a lot recently, uh, are these freedom convoys, You saw what happened up in Ottawa. Uh, and, uh, and, and obviously the news around the, the last week was uh, around the beltway here, but, but what, you know, what what do the, the the truckers want? You know, what, coming out of COVID, right? You talked about some of these mandates that you were able to to, to beat back, but ultimately, um, did the serve? Did they, serve a, did, they did, did the the protests serve a serve a, a better purpose for for moving forward? What what's what's your thought on uh, the newsmaking side of this?
2: Well, I think first and foremost, I can certainly understand, as I'm sure you all can, where this frustration comes from. I mean you've come two years out of COVID, um and we saw what we 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 uh uh you know witnessed up in ottawa um and their situation was obviously a little bit different than our own um we chose a legal path uh when when advocacy ran uh all of its course we took them to court um from the fifth to the sixth and then the supreme court and we bounced at six three in 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 january so uh Coming off Ottawa, I think uh, this group from multiple parts of the country uh, came together, uh, been circling DC for the past few days, uh, are, are very focused on that that uh, you know that sentiment of, of COVID mandates. Uh, I, I guess you know I understand solidarity uh, with 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 Ottawa, but in terms of the U.S. requirements, we won, we won, we did our job, and my sense of it is if groups like NAHB, ATA, do their jobs well for their members. They don't have to take time off from work to come to D.C. and protest. And that would be my preference. Right. So I get the anxiety and and uh, uh, the, the, the reasoning uh, behind some of these folks being spun up enough to do this. Uh, but in terms of cause, COVID's not one of them. I mean, most states have removed their mandates, and if they haven't, they will be very, very soon. So I don't look to that as a reason for for taking time off when our economy needs truckers out there moving freight, when rates are high, they're making good money. I would rather have groups like ours uh, take that on, uh, as that's what we're paid to do. And we've proven already that we're able to do it, uh, unlike the folks up in Canada, which I'm sympathetic for. Uh, Beyond that, I think one issue that I do think spurs uh, a lot of of, uh, frustration amongst our members. Is fuel price the cost of energy? And you know, we we talk about energy independence, energy security. It, what this we had it a year ago. We actually had that just over a year ago. And there isn't any legislation, any regulation that doesn't have a climate provision attached to it now. And now with Ukraine driving up costs, it's just unsustainable. Uh, so if you're a driver, you know, that's circling the Beltway and you're putting in that amount of fuel, uh, that's not sustainable. You're not gonna be able to do that much longer. So uh, that would be the one issue that I think uh, we need to be getting vocal about. Does it require a protest? Probably not. Um, But I do think we need to get very vocal across all segments of economy. And uh, that's what associations are darn good at. So we sent a letter yesterday to the president outlining what we recommended. They need to increase the number of leases. They need to increase exploration. They need to, you know, jump productivity. Uh, You jump production and put more oil into the market. You give the United States leverage, control, and it removes that volatility and that anxiety and gets the prices under control because we can't stand another 75 cent increase in one week. That's just we cannot absorb that. So it's going to start consolidating our industry. And that's going to take options away from, you know, home builders that that need truckers to move uh, product. And, uh, you know, so I think that's one issue, uh, Jim, we need to be getting vocal about. Uh, Again, does it require people circling the district? Probably not. But if I was upset enough, that would probably be the issue that I would choose.
0: You know, that's, that's interesting. Obviously, oil and gas impacts us across the board. From your guys delivering to our own members having to fill up their trucks and, uh, and their subcontractors having to fill up their trucks. And for the administration or whoever not to go ahead now and start producing more oil domestically makes absolutely no sense to us. I mean, we're gonna go, we're not gonna buy from one bad guy, but we're gonna go to Venezuela and Iran and talk to them about their oil. It, it makes no sense. I mean, right now we may not be in a war situation, but we're pretty close to it and the more independence we
2: have on the energy front the better as far as we're concerned absolutely you know listen half of the consumption in the us is foreign oil so why are we enabling regimes like russia and iran when we have that capability the ability to produce that second half here at home it's it's almost as if jerry were sanctioning ourselves <laughs> you know, I get the whole idea that that you know we, we need to help the people of Ukraine. I'm all on board with that. My members are too. Hell, we're supporting that through our foundation. So uh, we're all in on that. But that doesn't mean we have to take it in the pocketbook. Every time we go to fill up, we've got that capability here at home. So why are we sanctioning ourselves? We should be hitting Russia. We should be hitting the oligarchs like we are. That's all good, but we need to go further. And I think the domestic production alleviates that pressure and uh, ensures that people that are paying more at the pump uh, don't start withholding from other things like goods and services. That's when they're gonna choose, hey, I'm not gonna go with these options on my home bill because I'm paying too much here. That's the psyche of a, of a consumer. And it's gonna start having a ripple effect, not only on home building, but manufacturing uh, and everything else we're doing out there, services included. So these are things that are real time. And this administration would be wise to get back to where we were a little over a year ago and reclaim control of the market. And we have that ability. Uh, we're going to get loud. We're going to keep calling that out. And, uh, you know, I, I think there are more common sense people, hardworking, patriotic people out there uh, that are going to go to the polls in November and they're going to make decisions. Uh, I think November is going to be a turning point, candidly. Agreed.
0: Let me ask you one other question uh, real quickly, Chris. Um, You mentioned uh, the apprenticeship program that you started, that you signed on to with the Secretary of Labor. What percentage of your uh, members in your industry is unionized versus non-unionized?
2: Very small number. In fact, I've only got about four members uh, that are, you know, after deregulation in 1980, we saw union representation really take a drop within our industry and lots of uh, medium and smaller companies crop up that weren't in existence. Uh, So it created a lot of competition, which is also good for everybody we serve in all segments of the economy. Um, But the unionization uh, uh, efforts have have diminished uh, considerably. UPS, uh, ARCBEST, Yellow, um, those would probably be our our biggest unionized members. Um, You have others that aren't in that category. And then as you get down to the medium and smalls, uh, they're they're all open shops. So uh, when we see an effort like the PRO Act, um, get pushed. Uh, that really makes the hair on my neck stand up uh, because you're essentially reversing every labor uh, uh, agreement and 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 path uh, to to uh, organize since 1935. And you got half the states out there that are right to work states. Those will be all vitiated. Those will all be upended. And this would just essentially make it easy. For unions uh, to organize any workplace in the country. Now, just because it's easy, it's easy doesn't mean you should. Um, you know, if people want to join a union, let them join a union. I'm not anti-union, but I'm not in favor of changing the rules and tilting it toward one interest versus the other. What we've had since 1935 is balance between employers and unions, and uh, you know, let the better argument win is my view and uh, you know it works in some segments of the economy and others it doesn't ours is an industry that's changed dramatically since the 80s uh as a result result of uh, competition and i think that's been good across the board and look at what we're paying uh very very good wages with full benefits and uh it's reflected in the in the lack of of uh employees wanting to join uh a closed shop So um, we feel that maintaining that balance going forward is important, which is why we oppose the PRO Act. Uh, we've seen an assault on independent contractors and reclassification. Uh, AB5 out of California, we've, we've um, joined in that suit and making certain that uh, you know if you want to be an independent contractor, that's your right. A lot of people choose that path because they've got two businesses. or so They want flexibility but it isn't an employer forcing them into that category. I'm sure there's an abuse out there they can point to. Widespread, uh, we believe people should have the choice uh, to choose their path, their career path. And uh, the current model we believe works very well in that sense. So it's just something that we've got to maintain, uh, you know, uh, a focus on and commitment to.
1: Yeah, Chris, you're absolutely right. we're, We're right within lockstep on the PRO Act. And uh, the in the in the crackdown on independent contractor. I mean, like Jerry's starting to say, our industry, like yours, is 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 largely non-unionized. It's usually focused in the, in the big cities. And when it comes to commercial residential construction, um, and and any any push to regulate, I'm sorry, to to unionize inside uh, the 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 residential construction sector, uh, is just going to drive costs up. Uh, it's not the right model uh, that that is that, that build homes in America. Uh, given that this is sometimes season, you know, mostly seasonal nature uh, and also, you know, crews working from one job to the next, uh, we're, we're with you 100 uh, percent on staying vigilant on those pieces of legislation and efforts. I will say, too, we're not saying,
2: you know, don't join a union. You want to? You've got that right. Go do it. Yep. But to force that upon uh, employers and take away their rights to make it easier for uh, unions to uh, be successful in their campaigns. That's just wrong, and uh, it's certainly going to have an adverse impact on our economic growth. So, yeah, we're going to continue to join you all and be very bullish on that front. You're
0: well, here. thanks. We, we look forward to continuing that fight, Chris. And tell you what, we'll give you the last word here. What's your final message
2: to our listeners? Well, uh, you know, stay the course. Uh, I represent some, some of the most patriotic, hardworking folks in the country, uh, like NAHB and your members. Um, we want what's good for the country, and uh, I don't want to see this administration fail. I really don't. I, I, I'm not out to, to uh, cast for one side or the other. Majorities don't mean a hell of a lot to me if, if uh, you don't do anything with them. Uh, and to that end, I think ATA is very, very focused on winning, on outcomes and results, things that are measurable for our members, but also good for the country. And uh, I think our story, our narrative, uh, speaks to that. And it should appeal to anybody, no matter what your political affiliation is. And you know, our commitment to doing what's right for our industry and members, as well as the country, I think is very sincere. I think that mirrors NAHB and its members. And, uh, you know, we're going to stay the course, we're going to continue to say those things that uh, need to be said, uh, we're not going to be shy about it. Uh, but in the end, we want to move you know, forward in a productive way that that helps our economy recover, makes us strong here at home. So if we can play a part in that as an industry that helps glue the economy together, we're going to do it. And we look forward to working with NHB and your members uh, to make certain that that happens. So I really appreciate you letting me come on here and, and share some of that with you and your members. And uh, we look forward to that going forward. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks, Chris.
1: Gentlemen,
2: that
0: was uh, Chris Spear, the- President and CEO of the American Trucking Association. Thanks again, Chris. Thanks, Thank Chris. You. Appreciate it. Thank Thanks, you, Harry. Thanks, Jim. I guess, Jim, to me, it comes as no surprise that uh, the nation's truckers and the nation's builders are facing a lot of the same uh, problems right now, uh, be it from the supply chain, be it from overregulation. Uh, it seems like small businesses across the board are facing some very tough times. And I think Chris Spear underscored that for us.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's great to hear, you know, their, their membership reminds me a lot of our membership, uh, dominated by small business men and women uh, who have the same workforce problems, the same, the same supply issues that we're facing. Uh, and, and, and our common, common enemy in the short term here are gas prices. And, uh, and it was great to hear from Chris and hopefully our listeners got, got a better understanding of what they're dealing with uh, as, as much as what we're dealing with and how we uh, we depend so much on the trucking industry. And, and I look forward to working with Chris and his team uh, is uh, to, to push issues forward uh, that benefit his industry, because I think at the end of the day, they benefit ours.
0: Uh, I completely agree. And, you know, speaking of looking forward to things, Jim, I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to baseball. And uh, finally. <laughs> Uh, the millionaires and the billionaires got together and decided that the American people deserve to have our national pastime brought back to us. So let's play ball in the near
1: future, huh? you here, here. Cannot wait. Well, I go. guess, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that
0: concludes uh, this episode of Housing Developments. Please, uh, if you listen and enjoy the program, uh, please go on and rate us and review us. Uh, we really, really would appreciate it. Uh, it's uh, very helpful Um, to uh, the continuation of housing developments. So thanks for listening. Thanks for reviewing. Thanks for rating. And we'll see you next time on Housing Developments. I'm Jerry Howard. And I'm Jim Tobin. See you next time. Take care. Bye.